There's lots of easy ways to die in volcanoes. Actually, it's probably quite difficult. It sounds quite easy, but there's lots of... <laughs> it's actually probably safer than you think. Okay. Well, it'd probably take quite a lot of inaction on your part, hopefully. Like, Yeah, I mean, there'd be a bunch of things going off before <laughs> you were about to die that should give you a chance to die. <laughs> yeah. If not, you deserve to die. Yeah. If you've not noticed. There's <laughs> lava. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Pint of Science podcast with me, Callum Davidson. And me, Jim Hake. This is the podcast where we sit down in the pub with some of the most interesting scientists the world has to offer, buy them a drink and encourage them to spill the scientific beans. This is a show for people that love science, people that love people, and you know, if you love science people, then congratulations, you have found your utopia. Now this podcast accompanies the excellent Pint of Science Festival, a festival that sees researchers across the world spilling forth from labs into their locals for three nights each May to regale you with fascinating stories from the research world. Tickets are going on sale in just three weeks time so do make sure you get on over to pintofscience.co.uk join our mailing list to ensure you don't miss a single update more on the festival at the end of this week's episode this week we're in the georgian dragon in acton catching up with geoscientist and volcano enthusiast chris jackson chris completed his undergrad degree and phd training at the university of manchester added we back in the heady days of 2002 back when the simpsons was on bbc2 followed by fresh prince such good times that was great after a t- brief two-year stint in Norway working for Norsk Hydro, Chris returned to the UK to take up an academic position at uh, Imperial College London, where he is now a professor of basin analysis in the Department of Earth Sciences and Engineering. And a very accomplished one at that. Chris has received awards in recognition of both his lectures and his writing. Now, alongside his work at Imperial, you might find him descending into a live volcano, as he's been known to do, both for the advancement and entertainment of humankind. Plenty more on that later, though. For now, it's time to get yourself comfy, crack open a beverage of your choice and fill your ears with a pint of science. This podcast is made possible by Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges each day and explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's gravitational physics course can help you brush up on your earth science whilst also getting yourself up to speed on gravitational fields, Newtonian physics and Keplerian orbits, all the things you could probably understand a little bit better. If you're inspired by what you hear today and you want to impress your mates at the pub by learning some of this great science for yourself, check out Brilliant.org or download the app. I guess then to take it all the way back to the very beginning, to begin at the start of not just your research life but your entire life. Oh my word. You were born in the East Midlands. I was. In a sedimentary basin. That is right. <laughs> Sounded like an accusation that <laughs> already offended the guests. Yeah. The way I said East Midlands. Yeah, I was born in Derby, so um, uh, and it lies above a carboniferous rift basin. But you know, I didn't know that when I was born. It was very geological. Just instinctively knew. I just instinctively <laughs> knew that's what I had to do. Yeah, that I was born there because my parents uh, met there in, right. in the city. There, they were nurses. So uh, yeah. And as a kid, did you find yourself like, are you one of these people who just immediately locks on to what they want to do with their life? Do you love collecting rocks? I still don't know what I want to do now. <laughs> Me neither. That's part of the problem. <laughs> no, not at all. I um, guess I was always outside quite a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was sport or my parents were big caravanners, big campers. So we always used to spend a lot of time outside. We never went on foreign holidays, so we were always in the Peak District. So, you know, around rocks, but I can't ever claim that. There wasn't one moment you saw a rock. I saw a rock and I was like, everything else has dropped away. <laughs> no, it, it definitely wasn't that. But, the, you know, you never know. Like, you try and think, is there any, like, trigger points in all of that? And, and again, I can't really say there was, but... 
maybe I just realised I didn't want to be inside all the time. As it is, we spend a lot of time indoors now as academics, but we do still do a large amount of field work. So. I was going to say, I guess that's the difficulty with, um, I think, most jobs, but academia, you see it very kind of specifically. You'll start on the front lines doing all the super exciting, you know, gathering the data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then everyone in senior positions, although they have more research responsibility, you're <laughs> at a desk basically most of the time. There is that kind of joke about, you know, the kind of uh, life sciences PI who hasn't put a white coat on or only puts on a white coat and goggles when, you know, there's a photo shoot in the lab. <laughs> yeah, 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 and they yeah. pick up like the pipette from the wrong end. And, yeah. <laughs> and, all, the, and all the PhD students and postdocs are like, oh my goodness, get them out of the lab. Because they're going to like break everything. Yeah, yeah that's totally a thing we do sometimes get a, a bit of distance from the research because we're organizing the research yeah, yeah sure but you studied at the university of manchester that's right yeah. so i guess that was the first big decision you made to pursue yeah. what you're now doing yeah which we both did as well should say oh did you manchester. oh you're yeah, manchester yeah, yeah. crew as well yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. from sheffield originally i don't think it comes oh, across in the also near the peak district ironically no so, no i can yeah. definitely hear it yeah okay so you went across on the the little sprinter train across yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. sprinters yeah. knocks him more on yeah yeah every single village yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what was your your BSc in? What was in geology. geology? Yeah. Right. So, I did uh, geology BSc because at that time there was no four year MSci degree, so it was like a three year degree was the only option, which for me at that time financially was good because you know couldn't have afforded to have another year at university. Whereas now I think you can still do BSCs, but they're a bit rarer. A lot of courses offer like a year in industry or something. Yeah, like yeah, a year abroad and things for them. Yeah. And you stuck around in Manchester for your PhD. Yep, loved it. Well, well okay, well. <laughs> that, that's good. That was yeah. the next question, bro. You <laughs> yeah, loved yeah. it. So I'm obviously from, well, it's not obvious at all. Actually. <laughs> I'm from a biomedical background. Mm-hmm. So to me, this entire area is very alien, I guess. My partner is a geoscientist, and she was reading what you did and was like, this is incredible. You need to ask all of these questions. Oh, really? <laughs> but is I'm... this going to be like a paper review? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're just going <laughs> to ask you a series of different questions. <laughs> We're reporting back to the funders. Yeah. 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 2002. <laughs> in sentence 15. <laughs> Imagine I know nothing and okay. give me an overview of what it was that your PhD and and I guess your research now still is about. Okay, yeah, so my PhD was looking at what happens to the Earth's crust, so the Earth's kind of upper layer, when you stretch it. So when you pull it apart, you fracture the rocks and you develop these giant fractures called faults and you get rift valleys, which you've probably heard of, like the East African rift valleys. So you get these big mountainous areas and then between them you have these big deep basins. And my PhD was looking at how those fractures grew as you stretch the crust and then how sediment was eroded from the high areas and transported into the low areas. The low areas are called basins. Mm. So that's what my PhD was about, was looking at these very old kind of processes. So by very old, I'm talking Miocene age rocks I looked at. So mine were like 25 to 20 million years old. Okay. Uh, so not that's not geologically old, by the <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah. So like, you know, they are, they, it was quite, quite fairly old, ancient rocks. <laughs> yeah. Yes, 20 million. Is that the end of the last ice age? No, it's yeah, like, like, no, like, no, like 10,000 more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm thinking of 20,000 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This <laughs> that's is what happened. Yeah. And there was like glaciers kind of just north of London yeah. and stuff like that. If you try yeah. and step in with like any yeah. knowledge that you don't have, <laughs> you sound like an idiot on a yeah. podcast. That's, I took a gamble. Well, so I've done one year of a geology degree. Oh, right. uh, at Birkbeck, actually. Okay. So uh, I have like 
a base level, but probably it's still enough to say some stupid stuff. So you might also like, yeah, you might have to do some correcting as well. When my partner listens to this, she'll know what I was trying to do there. So 20,000 years ago is like a project she did about the last Ice Age. Oh, I, was, I was trying to get something in to be like, hey, Roseanne, I learned something, <laughs> but I got, yeah. it so, I got it wrong by yeah, a factor a of a thousand. I don't think you're going to be the hero you want to. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> not, not done well there. What was the title of your thesis then? Oh, no. Come on. <laughs> It was something like Tectonostratigraphic Development of Rifts Basins, the Hamamfarun Fault Block, Suez Rift Egypt. Wow, snappy. Uh, <laughs> it is terminal, isn't it? Yeah. That title. I, it's the difficult second yeah. album, isn't it? No, I, I didn't, just in my defence, I didn't come up with the title. It was my PhD supervisor, and actually, I did end up doing largely what that title describes, but not actually. So, that title is actually doesn't wholly describe what I did for my PhD. Now, now you've asked me this question 20 years on. <laughs> it wasn't about Egypt at all, it, it went wasn't. down the road. <laughs> Derby, so. uh, yeah. and I really liked it in, in Manchester. Like the supervisor, that was a really big attraction to me. Mm-hmm. I worked with him during my undergraduate projects as well. So you know, the PI student relationship was good. Mm-hmm. Egypt looked really attractive to go <laughs> yeah. and do field work. It's an exotic bit of travel. Yeah. You know, the company was involved with the project, so I get a bit of exposure to industry. It was field work, which I loved doing, being outside collecting data. So you had a good relationship with your supervisor. You said, are you still in touch? Yep, not only personally, but also um, we still do research together. Oh, nice. So, uh, yeah, no, he's a really good friend. It's kind of an interesting kind of relation we have now where he's kind of really busy and he's kind of like trying to do all things. And now I'm looking out for him, you know, I guess, because the other way around. <laughs> uh, the tables have turned. Yeah, I was kind of... I wasn't a rant student by any chance, but you know, I used to like party pretty hard and live life very full, but then I'd be in the lab like doing work and you know, but I think he was a bit concerned about me at times. But it wouldn't be good supervising, I guess, to just be like, yeah, you're nailing it. Teaching people hard things, like hard bits of science or teaching them hard things about being academics in general, some of those lessons are hard to swallow. You know, the criticism, you know, about writing is difficult sometimes or the criticism about conduct is difficult. And that happens to us still as PIs, right? We still write papers, we still get criticised for our conduct. The cool word is asymmetry of power, right? You know, you've got the PI and then you've got the student. It, it, sometimes as a PI, you're like, I've got to tell somebody something really difficult. Yeah. And it's really hard because I don't want it to come across like hectoring or bullying. But I've got to do this for the professional development of this person. And it's really, really hard. And sometimes you just bite your tongue, you know, you're just like, I can't go through with it. Because <laughs> I, I just think it's, it's going to upset them too much. And, yeah. and then I kind of think, well, I, should, I need to do that. You know, difficult conversations. There was a discussion the other day where there was this piece of paper with red pen all over it. And, you know, understandably, somebody's upset by that. But then you're like, well, the alternative is there's no red pen on this. We send it to review or you send it away for this funding application or you send it away um, for a job application uh-huh. with no edits and it gets panned or you don't get the job. And then it comes back with all these comments and, the, you know, rightly the student would say to the PI, well, why didn't you, why didn't you give me up. some guidance or heads up on this? You know, so there's this very... I don't think it's an incredibly narrow line we're treading, but there is, a, there is an area in the middle we're trying to make sure that we're being direct and informative enough in the criticism and... T- and the, not even criticism, let's just call it teaching, the education, right? We're trying to do that, but equally we're, we're, we're trying not to kind of be too lightweight about it. Because, you know, once somebody externally judges you harshly, it's 
Probably even worse, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, like a stranger just comes up to you and just goes, this is rubbish. It's like your girlfriend telling you your hair looks rubbish before you leave the house. Or you've got something on your face, you know? I don't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> Never take hair for granted, Carl. <laughs> it looks great, by yeah. the way. Oh, thanks, so, thanks. This is the purpose so, of the podcast. You're yeah, going to yeah, show exactly. me with hair compliments. So much height. <laughs> <laughs> So after your PhD concluded, mm-hmm. you made your way to. I'm assuming Manchester wasn't cold enough for you. You went to Norway, is that right? <clears throat> it was too. It was too dry in Manchester. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, I went to Norway to a place called Bergen, Western Norway. So I had a um, job offer in a research centre for an energy company called Norsk Hydro, who are now called Equinor, or used to be called Statol in the interim. So it's kind of <laughs> gone through a few name changes. What I knew when I did my PhD is I really liked doing research. I wasn't particularly concerned about doing oil and gas exploration and production, but then Norsk Hydro at the time, one of the very few companies who actually had a research center attached to their main exploration and production body. So they still had a bunch of people doing fundamental research that fed into the applied stuff. So it was like the perfect job for me. You know, Norway, still in the research center, got paid some money because it was an oil and gas company. It worked very well for me, that position. So I have here that your title was actually Exploration Research Geologist. Yeah. With a lot of exploration, that's pretty cool. It was, yeah. You know, we used to go out and look on, you know, hands over our eyes, scanning the horizon for stuff. No, it was at a desk, largely. Uh, (laughs) All right. (laughs) No, we we did do some field work. We We did go out into the field. But this is one of the amazing things about exploration geology. We can look 10 kilometres below where we're sitting here and actually try and understand what's down there. So it is exploration, it is looking into the horizon, not 10 kilometres horizontally, but 10 kilometres vertically down beneath your feet. So I still like, even saying it now, I kind of think, oh my God, that is amazing. We get to do that. We get to explore a world which like nobody can almost get to. Well, nobody will get to, right? 10 kilometres down, nobody will ever get there, but we can can get images. yeah. Yeah, we can still get images which allow us to try and understand what happened beneath our feet in this location 300 million years ago. And, you, and like when you're looking over on the horizon, you can't look in time, you can only look in space. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It is really fantastic. Cool. I'm pretty sure I read that you still did some extreme, you know, some climbing. And I, ice yeah, yeah, I find I'm still looking for things to hurt myself with. Uh, oh, yeah. Let's run this morning. Uh, yeah. That was just a personal, personal just, hobby. Yeah. You just like doing dangerous things yeah. alongside the desk work. Yeah. After your time in Norway, so you were drawn back to academia. Mm-hmm. So you'd kind of, I guess what you just said there, actually, you didn't quite leave research, did you? You sort of stayed in a industrial research hybrid yes. role. Yes, very much so. So we still did a lot of research. I did a bit of exploration work as well. So that was really great, actually. I did really enjoy being like right at the more cutting edge of planning wells and actually that, you know, rather than doing some of the like softer research, which then you passed off to somebody and they sort of chose what they wanted from it, when you actually were forced with a decision of where to drill a well, that was really stimulating as well. But yeah, there was an opportunity to come back into academia, to to Imperial, yes. And now you're a professor of basin analysis? I am, yes. Your that's, voice went so, so high on analysis. That was the making sure professor of basin analysis? Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I do, yeah. I analyse basins, yeah. Yeah, yeah does that yeah. mean you just assess sinks? And yeah. I do, you know what, I should totally have that in my email, just yeah. like signature is a, is, a, is a GIF, like just a picture of a sink. Yeah. I don't think the sponsors will be too happy Disclaimer with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. That's that's pretty 
pretty cool. You just alluded to this now. So your work involves looking to the horizons that are beneath our very feet. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about how that tells us what might be, you know, what might have happened 300 million years ago yeah, or whatnot. Yeah. What's its relevance to now then? Yeah, there's a number of different things. I mean, one thing we do probably most commonly is take that understanding of how that particular part of the Earth evolved to prospect for oil and gas mm. resources. So if you can have an idea of when the Earth got deformed and what rocks types were deposited, some of those rock types might be very rich in organic material and be what we call source rocks. Mm-hmm. Some of those rocks might be very porous, like a sponge, and be reservoir rocks. And then some of those rocks may have very low porosity, low permeability, and be what we call seal rocks. So if we can sort of like try and get those elements together, 10 kilometers, well, not 10, but in these cases, let's say down to five kilometers beneath our feet, we then can say, okay, drill here. So there's that applied aspect to what we do. Also, if we can understand how the Earth evolved in deep time, so back in, in the past, we can also have a better idea of what might happen in the future in response to things like climate change, things that couple to that like sea level change as well. Mm-hmm. So we can use the past rock record to look at or inform how the, you know, the future Earth might, what it might look like. What are the kind of the biggest questions motivating you right now then? What's for Jackson Lab? Jackson Lab. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about naming labs after yourself. That's a, that's a, that's a big bugbear of mine. But, uh, um, what are we doing? I don't know, you know, we, I, this is going to sound hugely disappointing. We, we have a very kind of playful approach to research, I would say. We do a lot of stuff which we kind of enjoy, and I'm not sure if anybody else takes it seriously. We take it seriously in terms of what we're doing. We want to do it really well. So are they big questions? They're not water securities. They're not cure for cancer. They're not looking at complex political theorems and how it might change population dynamics and things that are really, really important. And maybe, maybe that's just me saying it, you know? I, I just think we do things which are really fun. They do have some relevance to the oil and gas industry. They do have some relevance to understanding what the future Earth might look like. You know, we do stuff around geohazards as well, you know, like volcanic activity, uh, submarine landslides that can damage infrastructure like cables on the seafloor. It is serious business. But when it boils down to it, it's just, you enjoy it. Yeah, and we do it. Yeah, we do a very diverse suite of things, you know. You've got to get out of bed in the morning and say, I want to go and do something which I'm going to really enjoy. And I guess you need to have that before you can say, I've got to go to work and do something that's really important. I think we're going to find, talking to a lot of scientists, that, yeah, the motivations are going to vary massively between, you're right, there are some areas that naturally lend themselves to those sort of like yeah we're addressing the huge questions here of our time or whatever yeah. but then there are obviously just... some things are just really interesting for their own yeah, sake exactly. yeah, yeah yeah some things don't i mean and and also you know even for somebody who's doing something in let's say malaria sort of medication or understanding transmission of malaria you know they might be doing something in one bit of that right not the drug translation bit they might be doing something in looking at the cell behavior with regard to the malaria kind of bug but it's just one bit of it so maybe when you ask them i'd go oh my god that's like the most amazing thing you do and they'd be like well well, it's just like one little small yeah. part of this, right? But yeah. to me, these people are absolute heroes doing that super hard stuff. So when, you know, when but I've got a couple of friends who do things which I just think are mind-blowingly important, but the way they talk about it is probably the same as me. They're like, well, you know, I really love doing it and it's sort of important and I do take it seriously, yeah. but... Well, once you've done something for how many years, it probably... 
I just think yeah. it's a bit weird if you sat there and you were like, yeah, what I do is really important. I just, <laughs> I'm, I, I just think there's always something more important. That... I think you've sort of tapped into one of the issues with science communication and public engagement in general. You know, on the one hand, you want to hook people in with these incredibly big questions that make people go like, whoa, I'm going to read this article or watch this video. But the truth of it is, as scientists, we know that, as you say, there's no one person whose job is like cure malaria. <laughs> there is someone who's going to be looking at one very niche aspect. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that. Can you imagine, imagine that job? Yeah. Oh, you're appraisal. You really appra- have you called me Larry yet? No. <laughs> yeah, precisely. So I guess, yeah, I suppose, I suppose Psycom finds itself having to, on the one hand, convince people that it is worth taking time exactly. to learn more about the research, but also it's not going to be this quick hit of like, you know, I think in a way that's what Pint of Science tries to do. We give people the opportunity to come and hear someone talk about that niche thing yeah yeah which normally when someone passionate talks about it i mean you're doing it now you're saying oh we don't ask big questions but you've actually made it sound extremely fascinating already (laughs) i think when anyone passionate talks about what they do yeah yeah. even if it's like looking at one kind of rock in one kind of (laughs) well done you pass (laughs) (laughs) Razan, are you proud essentially that's you know that's still something that can be talked about and made fascinating sometimes more fascinating than just bringing out the same old trope. You, you can see yeah. too much of the same headline-making story. No, exactly. But this kind of goes down to, say, things like writing grant applications, right? In one hand, you need to be... You kind of don't want to come across as the bit of work is incremental. You know, it's just adding a little bit on top of what we knew already. But equally, you don't want to be saying to people, actually, we're going to cure malaria in the next three years, right? So you, you end up needing to be in a space between there where you're making it clear there's an existing body of science that you're contributing to with something which is super cool in one area. But it's not going to be the end game, right? That's not going to be the thing that the, the kind of silver bullet, really. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll stumble on something which is like very transformative. Sure. And maybe we've done it already, but it's a, again, it's in a niche area, right? So it's in a relatively small area. But yeah, you know, give us the opportunity to stand on stage and talk about something very small. We can make it compelling to a general audience. Yeah. yeah. And to bring it back into the super niche, you have been described online as a hail. Well, hold on a second. <laughs> by, by yourself. Yeah. A hailophile. Oh a my goodness. I thought you were going to say something else. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> You've been described as many things. <laughs> a halophile, yeah. Which That's we true. have learned is not you're just not a big Xbox fan. There's no, no, I'm not. No, I don't even own a, a, a gaming machine. What, what is a halophile then? Salt-loving organism. A halophile is a salt-loving <laughs> organism, and you're yeah. one of those, aren't you? I'm a salt-loving organism. So we work, these sedimentary basins we work in, uh, some of these sedimentary basins contain salt, hmm. and that is literally the salt you put on your chips, so halite, sodium chloride. And when you bury salt rock, it actually flows over geological timescales. So it actually flows like a viscous fluid. Oh, wow. So it's a very odd rock. <laughs> yeah. it, it can brittly fracture like most rocks do, but it actually typically flows. So it has this very odd uh, mechanical behavior. So in these salt basins, you get these really bizarre structures, like these mountains of salt, which are five kilometers high and 20 kilometers long. And yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's completely mad. And so I got kind of drawn into working with salts and salt tectonics is the term we use a few years ago in a research project. And then I went on sabbatical in Austin in Texas and worked with some of the world experts in that. So that was cool. Is that still something you're studying now? Or Very is that... much. Okay. Literally day and night. There's kind of a decent group of us. So Sean Evans, who works with Pirate Science, uh, she's doing a PhD on salt tectonics. Oh. 
and there's a, about four of us at Imperial, four or five of us. And then I also work with a group in Austin, Texas, who work with salt tonics as well. So are you, are you very discerning about what you put on your chips? I <laughs> am. Only the, only <laughs> only the, the hipster lay in pink rose sea salt. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing less than yeah. 20 pounds a bag. You know, look at me, you can tell, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so you got into salt because of this bizarre behaviour it exhibits, that it kind of can flow and... Yeah, it just, just, looks, weird it just looks really weird and it creates these amazing structures. If you believe the numbers, salt in terms of the exposed rock record, so that is all the rocks that are exposed to the Earth's surface, this salt rock only accounts for, or evaporites, it accounts for only 2%. So sandstones, limestones, mudstones, there's lots more of those, there's a very little amount of salt. But if you go and look at all the uh, supergiant oil fields in the Middle East or Gulf of Mexico, pretty much all of those have salt as the reason those giant hydrocarbon accumulations exist. So you have this real odd situation where you have a rock which isn't very well recorded on the Earth's surface, but it's incredibly common in the Earth's subsurface and disproportionately has this, or it has this disproportionately important role to <laughs> these major energy resources. So in other words, if you were to look in a this is time for some amateur science again. But if you were to look in a basin and see that there was a high amount of, of salt, yeah. are you are you thinking, right, okay, this this could be a potential source yeah. of oil or whatnot? Is yeah, yeah. So salt so the reason salt is very important in terms of energy resources is it's got very, very low permeability. Fluids can't flow through it. So it typically acts as what we call the seal rock. So the hydrocarbons are trapped below the salt layer mm -hmm. because they can't actually migrate through the salt layer. Mm -hmm. So normally it's at the top of the reservoir. But it's got all these like mad properties, <laughs> like the thermal conductivity is really mad. You know, the way it re responds to stresses is really crazy compared to other rocks. So um, yeah, there's just like so much cool stuff to do with it. And there's hardly anybody on earth really working with it. It's a very kind of niche field. And You did a talk on this, it was... I did. What was the name of it? It was Terra, Terra Inferma. It was, <laughs> Terra Inferma. Yeah. That's the only time I've used Latin in my life. <laughs> People from Derby don't get taught Latin, so... <laughs> No, I enjoyed that. You um, you brought out a sample of... Silicon. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah. So when we do physical analogue modelling, so we can make little basins in a box, effectively, <laughs> like the size of this table, and try and uh, simulate some of the processes that occur in the earth, and then try and simulate the formation of some of the structures. And we use this silicon as the salt analogue. So it's amazing, you know, you kind of put it on the desk, and then, you know, if the room's warm enough, you come back off an hour later and it's pancaked or it's flowed off the table and things. Oh, cool. But like when you're holding it, it's really quite stiff. Yeah, it can deform in a fluid fashion. That's really interesting to hear that you model things in a physical way in a lab. I think I had this assumption that with geoscience, it was either you are in the field looking specifically at actual yeah. rocks and using all sorts of seismology. To yeah, yeah. Or you were modeling things on a computer. It's but funny it, that you've it's got... like a literal model. No, like no, it models. is, it yeah. is, it is. I mean, it is, it's, and it's really cool, you know. It is like a sandbox. <laughs> you, you literally put sand in a box and then, you you know, you have a hand crank or a machine and it pulls it and you build your own little riff basin in your kitchen. Mate. Can anyone do this yeah, at home? Yeah, yeah, is there yeah, a way yeah, to make one? Yeah, you could. Describe, <laughs> tell, tell us now. How you do you make, make your own? Well, you could just get like a little wooden box and put sand in it, right? So just build, buy some like a five pound bag of sand from the builder's yard. And then on one end, you just have a moving wall. So you don't even need a, a motor. And if you put that wall and you just pull it, 
like you'll like build your own rift basin because the sand will split apart. And you'll have faults and fractures. There you go. That, and then you'll press all your friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm talking my way through this, I'm like, please don't do this. It's a very slow party uh, trick with a quite lame payoff, uh, but it's, yeah. it's worth doing. Oh, no. It'll impress scientists. Uh, the end of a pint of science. If you invite all the scientists around the tea house, so you know they will yeah. be impressed. <laughs> So we can't really talk about your research without uh, mentioning the the V word, the v word which yeah. is of uh, course going to be volcano. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> Again, my eyes went wide. Yeah. There's a lot of confused expressions yeah. there. <laughs> and of course, yeah, in 2017, you became a, a star of the screen when you were part of Expedition Volcano, which was pretty exciting. It, it was. looked. It was pretty exciting to watch. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine it was pretty exciting to film. It was kind of an incredible experience. Like if okay. So if you just went to Goma, like the city on its own, Democratic Republic of Congo, you went to Kigali in Rwanda where we flew into, like that alone would be amazing. Mm-hmm. The sights, the sounds, the smells, just the landscapes, everything, the people, just an amazing, amazing place. And then you go to these volcanoes, you know, this volcano near Ugonga, which has got the world's largest lava lake in it, right? And tourists can hike up there. You can pay like two, three hundred pounds and go up there or something from the Virunga National Park, go up there as a tourist. That would be amazing too, right? And then you take all of that and then you try and make a TV show over the course of three weeks. <laughs> it kind of makes everything less enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of adds a level of stress to an already rather stressful situation, which is navigating this very dynamic environment to this massive, you know, East African city, and then you do this big physical job of getting up this volcano. You have to do all that while someone's filming you. And then somebody's got a big camera stuck in your face, and there's a drone flying around, and the director's like shouting at you and things. So it was just, it was probably one of the best things I've done, and maybe ever will do, maybe. Was it the first experience you'd had of doing television? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, because that in itself is, I mean, I have extremely limited experience, but that thing of having a camera stuck in your face and suddenly realising that just talking normally with a camera in your face it is, is amazing, extremely isn't it? hard. I love the way they kind of go, just ignore the camera. And then they, they, you're just like, <laughs> it's like, just yeah. pretend the camera's not at you and it's literally touching your head. And uh, it's like, just talk to me. You know, the director's like, just talk to me. And you're like, but what about the camera? Because <laughs> as well, I suppose you're trying to create that feeling of a relationship with the, and I must say you did it, you did it very well, but you're obviously trying to, make the viewer feel as though they're there with you on this adventure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, the, and you know, the, the whole point of this BBC documentary in particular was the viewer was coming along, you know, my role, if you will, in the show was to be the viewer's friend. It was to try and, like, talk to the scientists and sort of, so what are you doing with this box? And, like, does it work? And blah, blah, blah. And then talking to the director or kind of conveying that information to the audience. So it was, it was kind of psychom, really, in a, you know, in yeah. a way, really. Yeah, I wish I'd done some like easier telly before I went and did it there, I'll be honest. It's, it's literally a baptism it, of fire. It was a baptism yeah. of fire. Can you just talk while you're on this rope being led into a volcano? Yeah, yeah sure. Like, yeah, easy. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Were you, did you seek out the opportunity to get more involved in the sort of psychom side of things? Did you know anyone within the industry or was it just an email appeared in your inbox? Do you want to be involved? It was literally an email in the inbox saying, oh, we're putting together a TV show for the BBC. Uh, we want to talk to you about the development. So they originally asked me if I was, if, you know, just for a sort of commentary about the volcanoes down there. But then they wanted me to do some of the science bit of it. So there's some scientists, in inverted commas, in the show. I'm not one of the scientists, which is the... <laughs> 
a long, an ongoing yeah. joke amongst my friends. <laughs> but the scientists were the ones down there with the kit doing the stuff. Sure. And they wanted to do some uh, active source seismology. So they actually wanted to collect a seismic profile, so an X-ray underneath Niragonga, that volcano. But for all the logistical reasons you can imagine, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. But in the conversation with the BBC, when I went in to talk to them about it, they kind of said, oh, yeah, we really enjoyed like talking to you. Would you be interested in being a contributor? So kind of being a presenter on the show. So it was completely out of the blue and it came from a, a kind of slightly different opportunity with the same show that wasn't going to happen, but it gave rise to this other opportunity. Cool. Is it something you think you'll be doing more of? Do you want to pursue more television stuff? Yeah. I believe you did one about Pompeii quite yes, recently. Yes, yes, yeah. I did one on Stromboli as well. So that was aired on New Year's Eve. Oh, wow. At nine o'clock, yeah. <laughs> While everybody was having a good time. It didn't start at midnight on New Year's Eve. That would have been like a big, a big fuck you, really, wouldn't it? <laughs> it was night. They did do it at 9pm. You can edit that bit out. Um, they did do, they did do it at 9pm so I did that on Stromboli uh, that was a TV show called A Day in the Life of Planet Earth oh, cool. so they were talking about all the changes that happened in the course of 24 hours so there was a bit a segment about glaciers there was a segment about tides there was a you know and there was a segment about volcanic activity and I did that the first kind of five ten minutes of the show and then I did this show called um, The Next Pompeii, which was in Vesuvius, well, in Naples and uh, Pompeii, Herculaneum, and then I was up on Vesuvius as well. That's not been shown in the UK yet, but it has been shown in Canada. I have sell into that volcano too. I was going to say, that scene looked so dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Was it as dangerous as it looked in... I'm talking about the descent into Niragongo, yeah. Was it dangerous? No. no. Because you had that Scottish chap being like... Yeah, he wasn't... Aldo wasn't... Yeah, Aldo was, wasn't the most reassuring person to, to have something to a volcano with. He's like, everything can kill you. <laughs> no, he's really great, you know, because it is a really serious undertaking. Multi-pitch abseils are serious anyway. Multi-pitch abseiling in a place where there can't be any heli rescues and actually getting people in and out of that crater is really problematic. You know, you've got to take it very seriously. So I had full faith in Aldo and the team who did all the rigging and all the equipment. So in that respect, was it dangerous? Perhaps, yes. Did I feel unsafe at any point? Never. Okay. Actually, you know, I'm happy on ropes. I felt very safe with that team. There was rockfall. It had been raining a lot before, so there was a lot of loose rock. Was the director being like, Chris, can you look a little bit more nervous? Can you, <laughs> no. can you make it seem more tense? No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We need some drama. <laughs> can you look a bit more wide-eyed? Uh, yeah. No, and again, this is, I think, one thing the BBC did really, does really well and did really well in that show. They want it to be all realistic. You know, They want all of the reactions to external stimulus to be natural. So they don't want to shoot things twice. Like, could you just look amazed again for us while <laughs> sure. we reposition the camera? So everything we did, you know, they just film a lot of footage in lots of di different situations, but they are all natural responses. So everything in that rope, there's never a time where I thought I need to do something to make this abseil look, because it was physically and mentally quite demanding <laughs> yeah. anyway. So even if I wanted to kind of like ham it up, I wasn't in a good mental state to think, oh, what should I do to like look a bit more panicky? I was like, oh, I actually just do look a little bit stressed in that. Yes, yes, exactly. Chris Jackson knows an awful lot about the Earth. As well as helping him to understand how many ways you can die at the hands of a volcano, this also means he knows a bit about finding oil. Well, Brilliant.org can also teach you a thing or two about this. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them. 
As part of their gravitational physics course, Brilliant.org have an oil prospecting quiz that teaches you some of the fascinating and unexpected science at play. You'll be surprised how much gravity and the imperfect shape of our planet matter when it comes to striking oil. The quizzes and problems presented on Brilliant.org help you to apply the concepts you've learned. And what's more, there's no need to learn on your own as they bring together a community of fellow problem solvers to share the experience with. If you're quick off the mark, like a true prospector, you can bag yourself 20% off of a premium subscription package by heading over to brilliant.org slash pint of science. We've put a link to that in the description, or you can go to brilliant.org or download the app and find it there. Now, during the course of my research into volcanoes, I couldn't help but notice a lot of volcanoes have similar names to hipster cafes around London. So I've come up with a quiz for you. You're looking at the wrong person. Uh. I mean. <laughs> As in, you know a lot about one of them and not the other? Or? A 42-year-old guy with three kids is not going to know about hipster cafes. <laughs> but you do know, you do know volcanoes. So. Okay, okay. So the, the quiz, the quiz is, mm -hmm. is entitled simply Volcano or London Cafe. And I think we can, <laughs> I think we can probably, probably come up with a jingle for that. That we'll, yeah. we'll superimpose later on. <laughs> I simply give you the name. Okay. You tell me, is it a volcano oh, right. okay, okay. Or, or a London cafe? Okay, go on. Okay, Muji. Uh, cafe. Correct. Oh. It's a cafe <laughs> Strong start. <laughs> Brothers. Oh, that's a cafe. Brothers Ooh. is a submarine volcano oh, in God, New it is, Zealand. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It I was be, hoping you get a volcano. It, could, it could be both, though. Yeah, there probably is somewhere, like, really. Oh, sh okay. shit. We have Z. Z? How's that spelled? Uh, Z-double-E. Cafe. Correct. Yes. It's another cafe in Ealing. <laughs> Clearly, you've sampled coffee in Ealing. <laughs> Zarathustra. That's got to be a volcano. Incorrect. It's a, ca <laughs> it's a cafe in Hammersmith. <laughs> Zarathustra? <laughs> Might be named after a volcano, I don't know. <laughs> okay. D uh, I don't even know how to say this one. Dana. Dana. Oh, no. Volcano. Correct. It's a... a, a oh, I've written... A stratovolcano. On the Alaskan Peninsula. Did uh, I say that right? Yeah, yeah stratovolcano. Stratovolcano, yeah. okay. And finally, Etna. Mmm. <laughs> well, I definitely know it's a volcano, but somebody should totally have a cafe called Etna. So what are you going for? <laughs> On what? It's a volcano. You're going for volcano. That's that's your answer. <laughs> it's not now. I'm starting to panic. <laughs> Incorrect. It's a coffee house in Westminster. And I was asking about Etna Coffee in Westminster, <laughs> not the volcano in Sicily. Oh, I was trying. <laughs> <laughs> you saw you saw through my ruse. <laughs> you saw through my ruse. Beautiful. Yeah. And I was going to ask you a little bit as well about the other opportunities you've had to travel before we kind of move on from research. Mm -hmm. Uh, your job is presumably one of those that lends itself to exciting expeditions. Yeah, yeah. What other places have you been in recent times? So we are currently doing fieldwork in the Andes in a place called Nauken or the Nauken Basin. So it's in Patagonia, northern Patagonia. So you fly into Buenos Aires and then there's a two hour flight in sort of west in towards the Andes. So we're doing fieldwork there. So that's kind of pretty expedition style. It's, it's, it's not camping, you know, we have like a permanent base there, but it's yeah, really Pretty remote. Wild. Yeah, very remote, very wild, very sort of two to three thousand meter sort of peaks and things. So quite physically demanding to do the field work we do there. Um, so that's been great. We have done some field work in northern Spain in the Basque Country, so on oh, the cool. near Bilbao and things, so along the coastline there. That's been really good. Again, kind of a fairly logistically, that's kind of fairly straightforward to 
Pardon me. Um, so this beer. Is- <laughs> I know it's good. It bring, brings up the beer. I realised yeah, we, we didn't ask what we were drinking at the start of the podcast, which is typically something we do. We're all on the beer. What is it we're on? I cannot remember. It's the Citra Pale Ale. Citra Pale Ale. It's very, very nice. And we're in the Georgian Dragon Acton as well, which will be, of course, also covered in the introduction. Always like to give the pub a shout out. Yeah. So your field work out in these remote regions, what are you doing in the field? I have no idea what that means. So with field work, one reason we do it in our group is because when we're dealing with the subsurface of the earth, we're a long way away from what we're looking at. We've got an image which can be very high quality and you might have some boreholes where people have drilled down and taken some rock samples or taken some readings. So we can sort of work out where rocks are down there, but we can't truly see the detail, right? So imagine, this data we use is called seismic reflection data. It's kind of like like an ultrasound, let's say, of the Earth, or okay. an X-ray of the Earth. So you have this image and it can be a little bit blurry, but then imagine getting a bone and then cutting it open and then being able to see all the detail inside. The fieldwork is like the cutting it open bit. You know, you, you from the remote sensing bit, you get a good idea of the structure and the rocks that are there. Yeah. But by going in the field, you can try and fill in some of the gaps that you've got beneath your feet. So. What's strange about it is, you know, we can be working in a basin in the North Sea, offshore Norway, and we can go to the Suez Rift in Egypt, which has a broadly similar tectonic setting and rocks of a completely different age, but the processes were the same and try and understand the North Sea by looking at Egypt. Mm-hmm. So that's what we do is like analog work, yeah. a bit of analog work. Yeah. So we're kind of saying, okay, where in the world can we see rocks which are similar to this area we're working on? And can we collect some data that help us? From my brief foray into geology, there was a lot of strikes and dips. Which Lots I'm not of strikes sure. and yeah, dips, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's a structural geology, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. if you want to understand like folds and fractures and how the Earth's deformed, you often go and record these uh, measurements which allow you to reconstruct in three dimensions the structure of the Earth. Sure. And some idea of the tectonic forces that give rise to those structures. One of the things that made me laugh quite a lot when I was doing my research for this podcast, you've been described by the Geological Society of oh, London. Right. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, it's not another not another hail file. You've been described as the leading and most productive interpreter of three-dimensional seismic reflection data of his generation, which got us thinking about... <laughs> Imagine being the second most. <laughs> he must really hate you, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Like tires down in your that car. person can't be here today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a this is your life, but a really bad one. Yeah. <laughs> the most niche compliment yeah, I can imagine being you know, From Derby, at yeah. the end of the tagline. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. I'll take yeah, no, it's any, still pretty good. Yeah. Being the most of anything in the world is yeah, pretty yeah. cool. Just, that was uh, for the Bigsby Medal I won in 2013, I think it was. So there was a citation that was written by the nominators and things, and that was it. So yeah, I use a lot of seismic reflection data, so these these kind of X-rays of the Earth, and we apply that to understand lots of different things about how basins develop. And pr- what do they say? Productive. The leading and most productive interpreter <laughs> productive. of three-dimensional seismic reflection data. Of this generation. Probably meant I should have got out more. And, and, like, <laughs> I'm not sure if that was a compliment, yeah. actually, now I think of it. Thinly veiled. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, as well as the work you've done in research, you've kind of made yourself a voice for some of the sort of structural issues within academia. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, you've talked in the past, in 2017, you gave an interview uh, in The Guardian. Mm -hmm. in which you highlighted the kind of woeful lack of diversity in academia, particularly at the more senior levels. Essentially, the kind of two 
main conclusions that are discussed in that article, at least, are that black and minority ethnic students are less likely to progress to science jobs after graduating yep. than white counterparts. Yep. And likewise, black British scientists are like underrepresented at the most senior levels of science. Absolutely, yeah. In your time in academia, have you seen major changes in that culture or is it something that's... I mean, I've been at Imperial College 15 years now and there's certainly more programs and efforts to do two things. One is to attract more people into STEM subjects, let's say, in general. You know, universities trying to reach out to local schools individually or through um, things like the Sutton Trust, like kind of organisations which actually help the universities liaise with first-generation university attendees, which will then, you know, kind of capture oftentimes some of the underrepresented groups. And then the other thing universities are doing are trying to make that envir- their environments better for the BAME staff and students who are there already, right? So what are the special, not special requirements, that sounds a bit crap, but... <laughs> What it's really hard their... not to use, like, you find yourself well, this is this, into, no, yeah. but this No, but this is, this is kind of part of the issue. I was thinking about this, you know, this morning. Like, there's a lot of language around a lot of these things, a lot of sensitivities, but I think, you know, we can't, like, hang people up too much on, like, not knowing all of the correct words in all of the correct times to address all of the people in the right way. A lot of it is the intent of the, the, yeah. the context around which the word's being Absolutely. used. But, you know, it's okay for me as a person of colour, you know, like... We may have had previous life experiences that mean that we, you know, we, we, we benefit from being kind of handled in a different way or certain things being put in place to support those, you know, those, the, the requirements we might have or addressing the behaviours of others, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like saying to other people, look, you know, what you're doing might seem just very casually okay to you, but actually to this group of people over here, mm. it's, it's kind of not appropriate for them. And that's not just, you know, people of colour. That's like there's a lot of other underrepresented groups who could react badly to inappropriate behaviour and language. So yeah, I think the universities are trying to do that. They've identified it. A lot of these conversations are going on in public a lot more. So whether it's on social media or whether it's actually on the channel, you know, on the news or these conversations can be had in the corridors. People are more, I think that's one of the good things I've seen. people are more conscious of it. I think people are more conscious. People are bolder about talking about it and therefore people can't ignore it. You know, they can't just kind of brush it under the carpet as readily because people will kick up a right stink in, in various forums. I think social media in particular, like I've noticed, has been extremely good for that. I, I'm not always the biggest fan of some of the aspects of social media. Um, <laughs> no. But I feel like in giving people a voice, essentially, to kind of, you know, you can you can give a hashtag to something and turn it into something so much more powerful. Yeah, something exactly. that previously might have not even been have been picked up yeah given airtime by it is, it is sort of that journalism 2.0 isn't it it's allowing yeah. people to kind yeah. of like report on what they and also I think one of the things with social media media it's kind of rubbish for various reasons but sometimes it does make you feel that you're not alone and that your experience you had where you were acted you were upset by something or you know something happened to you and you kind of think you know was it just me or does it just happen here and then you know there's a there's a shared experience there which often gives you a bit more confidence then to go and raise it formally let's say with mm. somebody or to kind of say what did you do and can you support me in this and I, I think it's I think it's good for those reasons and it's not just minority groups it's also say early career researchers as well you know who are trying to get the, the ear of more senior people because they feel they need that to address these issues and that's why I think it's really good is when I hear those things and I've certainly learned a lot from using social media over the last say three or four years which I otherwise probably wouldn't have known about and mm-hmm. I think I've absolutely changed my behaviour because of it 
things I may have done or said before I don't do or say anymore because I kind of think, oh my God, yeah, that's really terrible to do that. And if I hear somebody else do or say it, you know, I'm kind of happy to interject as well. And also you just realise that you do have a platform as a senior academic yeah. to, to kind of go and terrorise some other senior academics, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> because... Yeah. And there was a Guardian article, I think maybe it was a year or two before I did that Guardian interview or contributed to that article. And it was about like, what do professors do? I think, it was, I think that might have been the title of the article. Partly about what do they do in terms of their work and things like that, but it was also like, when you become a professor, what do you, like, what do you use it for? Like, what, do you do anything different when you become a professor? Harder questions, raise more money, line the nest a bit more. You know, you can do all those things, you've got a bigger reputation. But another thing we should be using it for is to, is to burn some of the credit <laughs> yeah. we've got on people who don't have it. Yeah. You know, like... Yeah. Get, what, provide a voice, you mean? Yeah, because what pisses me off is yeah. like sometimes people say to me, oh, but it's all right if you do that because you're a professor at Imperial College. I've still got lots of things to lose by sticking my head above the trenches yeah, yeah. or like, you know, fighting on some of these issues, you know, and, and being a person of colour doesn't make it any easier, right? And being a relatively junior person as well, you know, because I'm moderately young, let's say, as well, there's a lot more senior people there who still might not like what, I'm saying on behalf of others, or what I'm saying, you know, sort of myself as well. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's. I think it's a. I think it's a good use of that of that capital you have. I think, but a lot of people disagree. They're kind of like, I got here. I'm just gonna. It's quite a scary world as well, isn't it? Because I'm at risk of going off on a massive tangent here. It's one of those things where once you do state a strong opinion on on social media, you are essentially putting yourself in the line of so many very very opinionated people. You you can put those opinions across, but then also what you say is recorded for for history. So if we take the example of the professor who a few years back, oh. he made a, oh, no. some very misguided comments around women in, women in STEM. Yeah, they can't uh, work in the lab because they fall in love with they you. they cry and they, yeah. And it's one of these like... <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of eyebrow rubbing. Right? <laughs> Just like, yeah, you, yeah. You obviously he said that in a conference room nowadays and it's a, a good thing really. Like, you know, like yeah. that was on the internet and, and yeah. it's, it can have a very powerful impact that doesn't go away quickly so yeah, yeah, you have yeah. to be quite brave to use social media in that way a lot of people shy away from I think no, using it to and, it and it's to do with and it's partly to do with personality types of course some noisy bugger like me you know <laughs> like I'll kind of do that and I'll you know like okay I might get it right or wrong but I think it's the right thing to say and I might upset somebody whereas some other people who are not like that might be like I feel exactly the same way but I can't I just don't feel comfortable engaging in public or even in private you know some people are so they kind of believe in the point, but they, they can't bring themselves to kind of say it. Well, it's quite a big risk if you're putting yourself out there and there's a lot of, institutionally, if you become known as someone that's a like... troublemaker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 you can become, yeah. yeah, you can become known as a troublemaker and an agitator and a rabble-rouser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you are all those things. <laughs> yeah. But, like, you just don't want something to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but you, yeah, you, you do. And I don't know how I feel about it, you know? I, I, to get where I've got today from where I kind of started off from, like, my background... I've had a lot of help from a lot of people and they, they've had to challenge some people on my behalf when I was more junior and things like that. And I just think, you know, I want more people sort of like me from my background and people who aren't from my background who have other interesting stories and other interesting kind of diverse histories to, to kind of feel comfortable in academia. So I'm willing to fight for academia as a space. You know, I think it's, I think it's amazing what we get to do. I think it's a huge honour to do research and to teach people. And it's worth fighting for, you know, it's worth... 
it is worth flying quite close to the sun on some of these issues in terms of interaction with senior people because maybe they forgot like what it was like being an early career researcher. Maybe they're at Imperial, not at this other university over here or there, and they think, well, it's like that for everybody. It's not, you know? We need to scrap sometimes, even if we're in a relatively comfortable situation. We should, we should be using that position to make ourselves feel a bit less comfortable <laughs> and put ourselves in the position these people are less comfortable and actually try and help them out. To yeah. o- overcome the very human instinct of being like, I've made it, now I can relax. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, yeah, I, mean, yeah. Like, I mean, you just, you know, like I say, you feather the nest. You're like, oh, it's all good. Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. we need to... You know, we can't expect early career researchers to kind of do all that lifting, you know? We can't be saying to them, well, you need to go and speak to these senior people because I've got my own stuff to sort out. And you, if you want to change the world, you need to change it. Because, you know, it's not fair to ask them to do that because there are some awful human beings who <laughs> yeah. will be like, right, okay. No career for you. No career for you. <laughs> yeah. Whereas for me, at least I've got a bit more I can use, you know, in terms of, of trying to have that fight repeatedly with them if I need to. No, absolutely. I think I think that would be, uh, that's definitely something I've heard echoed amongst early career researchers who say it's, I mean, not necessarily in the context of diversity, even if I had this conversation before, but when people are talking about just professors losing sight of the struggles of early career research in general, academia is not like a cushy career path to carve out a niche in, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. A yeah, lot it's, of people... It's lo- not a cheap lo- option. No, right, no, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, what's this phrase, you know, like, been sipping from the Kool-Aid too long, you know? That, <laughs> yeah. It's an American phrase, yeah, right? Yeah. But this idea that you just become so giddy with, like, your own success and achievements, you're kind of like, I can't remember how crap it was yeah. when I wrote my first paper and got the first set of rejection letters back. Yeah. You know, so I think we need to support early career researchers, and I include masters and PhD students in that, and undergraduates as well, and, you know, support them, and also celebrate the successes we publish a bunch of papers if we get a paper accepted now go to the pub have a slice of cake have a, you know celebrate because it's still a it's still a massive deal it doesn't get any less exciting having papers published or going to conferences or like it's still it's still as exciting now as it was when i was when did i start with phd 21 yeah well you could not have said anything more appropriate than publishing papers. Yeah, because another <laughs> another thing that we know that you're interested in, it might link to access to academia and stuff, but is open access. Yeah, yeah. There's a few different issues around open science, open access. They all yeah. get like mixed together. You know, open science is, for me at least, is the notion that, you know, the science you're doing is open and, and very honest. So the data collection bit of it's kind of done transparently and correctly. The data are available along with the publication so other people can analyse your results and kind of have confidence in the conclusions arising from your work. So that's kind of the open science bit of it. And I like that. And I like the idea of open science in that it's it's kind of collaborative. It's doing work in a very transparent box, allowing people to see into that and saying, well, I could contribute. And I think I just think you get a better you'll get better work out of it and you'll build some like amazing collaborative kind of links with people and do better science if you and not like, well, we have all the expertise we need in this room and that's all we need to do. Whereas if you're kind of more open with things, I think it's better. So I think that's that's the open science bit, the open access bit. Yeah, let's take this opportunity, by yeah. the way, just to define a few terms. Because I'm worried we've leapt into quite a, an in-depth discussion of people outside the world okay. of science. So just it might be useful to start by defining what what is open access. Um, what's open access? <laughs> One sentence, please. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ten words. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> open access in its most simple form would be publications are available for everybody to access and read. Sure. 
that's probably the best way of defining it. So researchers so, publish papers. Currently, a lot of those are behind a paywall. Yeah. Such that, and the argument goes, obviously, a lot of scientific research is publicly funded to some extent. Yeah. So therefore, is it fair to ask people to it's essentially the, yeah, pay twice? Property the public. Yeah, yeah. The, the taxpayer have paid for this bit of work and then they can't actually see what the bit of work is the only time they may find out what that bit of work was when it's done when it's actually goes into let's take an example some drug that's developed out of it right so that's the then you know the probably the probably product. at that point yeah the end product yeah yeah and earth archive which we briefly yeah. discussed there can you just quickly let us know what earth archive is yeah so earth archive is a preprint server uh, a preprint is a paper the best definition is it's before formal journal-led peer review. So typically a paper will go to a journal and the journal will approach reviewers and they'll formally review it and you'll get a decision back and then you'll address the corrections. But this is a paper before that process. So it's a manuscript which can be posted effectively on the internet. It can at that point be submitted to a journal too. At that point, it can be reviewed online by your peers. There's tools which allow your peers to go in to review it en masse. Or, in some communities, they view sometimes those as being published articles at that point. How is that viewed by senior academics who might be potential recruiters of those in the past? If I, as an early careers researcher, say I've got a bunch of preprints but nothing published? In some fields, with some people, I think that sort of example you give of yourself there, I think there'd be a lot of PIs who'd be like, OK, I can read your paper myself and I can work out whether it's any good and whether I want you in my lab or not. Mm. I think still in earth sciences there's still a very much like you need these papers to be published to be considered because a preprint is literally a blog. Mm. This ties into a bunch of other things but you know somebody should be able to read a paper and decide for themselves whether they think it's any good. Without the review process? Without the review process. And I, the reason I personally say that is because I read a lot of peer-reviewed papers which aren't very good. Yeah sure. <laughs> So uh, for me, it's kind of a simple choice. I'm, I'm, I'm always reviewing papers when I read them. They can be before publication or after. Yeah. And the proof in the pudding is then ultimately oftentimes whether I cite it or whether I go and say to the PhD students, oh, by the way, you know, I read this paper, it's really, really good. Or, the, you know, the way they've done it isn't how I would do it, but the data look really amazing. And then there can be a discussion online or people send emails and say, oh, I saw your preprint, it's really inspirational, We're, we've already taken it on board in our lab. Because, you know, the peer review process can take minimum let's say from submission to publication, if you don't get many corrections, maybe six months, it's probably the least, I've had the shortest time I've ever had. Normally a year and a half. I was gonna say with corrections, it's a lot longer. Yeah, yeah, you maybe go through <laughs> corrections, another round of corrections. So again, you know, for early career researchers, there's that sort of slight trade-off because, you know, they want to get these papers through peer review, but this paper's like bouncing around in some editor's inbox or somebody's on holiday not reviewing your paper. But at least if the preprint's there, there are a number of big universities now and funders, they will accept preprints in support of grant applications. Mm -hmm. Because what they'll do is the, the committee, the panel will be able to look at those preprints and take it as evidence of your qualification to do the bit of research in the grant proposal. Yeah. And, and, awesome. and if these world experts can't look at this paper themselves and go, I think this is amazing or I don't think it is, I need some two random people to give me a stamp of quality on this. I think we're in a really, it's a really weird spot to be in. Because I think what it does is it does the other th problem, which is to make us believe that everything that's peer reviewed is correct yeah. and good. Generally, you know, the sharing of knowledge, the more open we can be, the better. Mm -hmm. But a criticism sometimes leveled at open access is that there's a risk that by removing the paywall on the kind of 
viewers side yeah, yeah, of the yeah. paper that that cost is actually just handed yeah. to the researchers yeah. so you have to pay extortionate fees yeah. to have a paper published in that an open journal. access journal yeah so i mean <laughs> i'm not exactly expecting you to solve this massive structural <laughs> issue somebody described it to me once as victorian publishing because only the wealthy get to publish their science you know like back in the you know there's like this notion that like the wealthy got to go and sit in the royal society and pontificate on the <laughs> something else but the poor woman who's like done this amazing bit of science she's not allowed to come and play mm. so there is that issue there one issue is I think researchers don't understand at the moment in the current system that it costs money to publish papers you submit it for free and then it magically appears online there's a cost to that what that cost is I've heard various numbers all the way from maybe a couple of hundred pounds or even less maybe 50 pounds all the way up to some journals where yeah some prestige journals may have like ten thousand pounds per article right so they have this really high because they handle a lot of rejections as much as they do published papers so they're still having a lot of capital invested in professional editors resources mm. so that you know I think one thing about open access what it does is it educates researchers that it do, yeah it costs money to publish papers <laughs> online even though it's on the internet so that's good the other thing is I think a lot of researchers don't realise that it's free to submit the paper but your library in terms of the subscriptions they're paying for the journal access, that costs our library an incredibly <laughs> large amount of money, yeah. right? For these bundled, we call them bundled subscriptions, right? So they seems you know includes a lot of journals, and because you know we cover a, in Imperial, we covered a lot of a lot of STEM and medicine. That's a huge cost to the university, right? That that budget is coming from somewhere in the university. Mm. But the research is kind of happy with that because that money's not coming from their pocket directly. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if the library were like, oh, actually, we've got this like one million or two million pounds, and actually what we're going to do is like use it for seed funding for all these small startup projects in the university. I don't know, maybe researchers would go for that. Be like, yeah, you know what? Let's cut the subscription. Let's all use SciHub, <laughs> which is this illegal server for papers. <laughs> or we'll use Unpaywall, which is a more legal version of finding free papers let's use that and then let's kind of keep that money and invest it in research or research infrastructure. University of California two weeks ago cancelled the Elsevier subscription. I don't know if you read about that, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I have read about... And that was a big deal because, you know, University of California presumably is not full of idiots, <laughs> right? And they're like, you know what? We can't afford this. We're not willing to do this. We think the, the rates are kind of inappropriate. And I suppose one thing we haven't asked you about is uh, what does a, a professor of basin and analysis... analysis do when he's not being a professor of basin analysis what are, you, what are you doing yeah. I mean you turned up I think today you already mentioned just... an 18 mile run which yeah. seems like so I like running a lot it's good for just keeping physically fit and also it's just good for mental health as well yeah it's really good like running to work running home weekends I'm training at the moment for the Vienna marathon in four or five weeks time so yeah I came straight here from an 18 mile training run so I think I've done quite well you've really gone straight from the run straight onto the pines straight onto the beer I think it's gone pretty well yeah no and like I think in academia it can be a bit of a pressure cooker environment there's a lot of demands on your time so I think when you disengage from that environment it's really important to go into like a completely different space you know like go and do something which could be as far away from looking at rocks on a screen so kind of like running is is one of those things for me and like road cycling as well so I see the, the, yeah, yeah, the training like, t-shirt yeah, yeah. my cycling t-shirt yeah like road cycling as well again it's um one of those things as well road cycling and running as well it's good to do it on your own quite reflection if you will mm. under a bit of physical yeah. duress <laughs> <laughs> 
Quite but, reflection through extreme, extreme physical pain. pain. Yeah. yeah, that's how I roll. Yeah. But on the flip side, you know, you can go cycling or running with friends, and it can be a bit of a like a community outing. You can, you know, cycle out and go and have like you know brownies and coffee in a cafe in Surrey Hills somewhere, or go running with somebody. And the pace doesn't matter. It's nothing to do with that. You know, when you're training for a race, sure, there's going to be times when you need to do something. But I will never turn down the chance to go cycling or run with somebody because it's just a, you know, it's just nice to kind of run and chat or not to chat at all, you know, just to run with people who are, you know, haven't run as much as I have. Well, it's been incredible catching up today. I think we've... It's like, been an absolute pleasure, yeah. Good chats there. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's always nice to come and talk about the work we do, but also, like, the fact... Yeah. You know, there's lots of things we do which aren't yeah. just scientists are people too you know like amazing <laughs> yeah it's, it's ridiculous yeah, it's so weird <laughs> This podcast is made possible by Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new each day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's gravitational physics course can help you brush up on your earth science whilst also getting yourself up to speed with gravitational fields, Newtonian physics and Keplerian orbits, all those easy things. If you want to channel your inner earth scientist, have a go at the oil prospecting quiz in the gravitational physics course. And don't forget, if you head to brilliant.org slash pint of science sharpish, the first 200 people there will bag themselves 20% off a premium subscription. Oh, that was so cool. So Callum, would you abseil into a live volcano? Um, only if I was dead to. If I was dead to, I'd have to do it out of the kind of the peer, shame of rejecting a dare. Yeah, exactly. If I was peer pressured, I'd do it. But otherwise, no, too dangerous. So scientific endeavor, nah. But like being Not worth being it. embarrassed Not in front worth of people, it. yeah, pretty much. Fair enough. <laughs> Sounds like Chris had done that quite a few times. The guy really gets a lot done. He had a pint in hand within about 10 minutes of finishing an 18-mile run, people. That's... It's, it's next level. It's not, it's not normal <laughs> behaviour. It's very impressive behaviour. Yes, that was fantastic to catch up with Chris. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Pint of Science podcast. We have new episodes of this podcast coming out every Monday morning. And we're really, really enjoying them. Yes, we really are. So, yeah, Monday morning... Check your podcast apps, wherever, which, whichever one it may be. Look out for us. And if you really enjoy it, then please do subscribe. Leave us a review. Give us preferably five stars, you know, however many you want to give us. Rate us. Share us with your friends. Yes, absolutely. Do. And also head on over to the Pint of Science website, pintofscience.co.uk, where you can have a look at what we've got coming up after April 8th when we launch our tickets. Before then, there's still plenty you can get involved with. Pint of Science website, again, is pintofscience.co.uk. We're also on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. All of these are things you should be following. There's an awful lot of exciting science coming your way this May. See you next week. Hello, everyone. I'm Sam, the producer of the Pint of Science podcast. I usually sit behind the desk whilst Callum and Jim do the talking. But I do have a podcast of my own. And since you're clearly into learning and having a bit of fun, you might just like it. It's called That Was Genius, and it's a history podcast in which my friend Tom and I surprise each other every week with a funny, gruesome, or just plain odd historical story. Other than having a weekly theme, the rest is up for grabs, so there's lots of silly jokes and plenty of dubious accents. A bit like these. Mais oui, these eight-month-old donuts. I have never tested anything like it. Sacre bleu! I've never tested anything so hard. I love the presentation box. When I open it, all the flies come out. It's a beautiful. It is a multi-sensory experience. It is wonderful. <laughs> Fantastic. The, the smell, the sight. Oh. <laughs> 
If you're interested in finding out more, search your favourite podcast app for That Was Genius or go to www.thatwasgeniuspodcast.com.